0: you to follow in your Bible, I'm going to read from two different passages of the New Testament. First, a brief account of resurrection morning from Mark 16, and then our main text from the letter of Philippians chapter 1. This account in Mark is typical of Mark, writes in very brief style, and we believe rather firmly that Mark ended with verse 8. You'll see if you look at your Bible, if you're not familiar with this, what is called the longer ending of Mark, we think is something supplied by well-intended folks who thought that Mark needed to have a little more of a happily ever after sound at the end of it. But it does appear from all the early manuscripts that Mark did end at verse 8 with trembling and fear and bewilderment. Certainly there was resolution as the disciples went out from that. But listen as I read. Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed. He said, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling. And bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And then also God's Word in the letter we call Philippians, written late in the career of Paul, one of the latter things that he wrote near the end of his life. He was in prison. He was discussing with these folks the fact of his imprisonment and God's sovereignty over everything. And after saying that God could even use his imprisonment and would get glory from it, we pick him up in verse 20 of Philippians 1. The apostle writes, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life, or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. This ends God's Word. Let us seek to hear it with faith today and apply it in our walk of faith. I'm going to read you a few excerpts from a remarkable letter The letter is quite a bit longer, but just a few parts you'll hear. This letter was written by a man named Alan Groves several years ago. Al was a seminary professor of Old Testament. Believe me, those of us who study these disciplines kind of have a special respect for the Old Testament guys because they have to know Hebrew. You read it backwards, it has a strange alphabet, it's very complicated. And Al was an expert in the Hebrew language. Sadly, from a human perspective, Al Groves succumbed to cancer a few years ago and died in his mid-50s. This letter I'm going to quote from was one he wrote while he was quite ill, knowing that his life was not much longer. He planned for this letter to be reproduced and distributed at his memorial service and read by... Friends and family, as an expression from him, a theologian, of what he knew to be the very essence of life. And he knew that when people read it, his career of this life would be over. Here's some of what he said As I've walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I went hand in hand with Jesus, who also walked this valley and who came out on the other side of it alive. Now I have died. And I have received the eternal life that has been my only hope, past and present and future. At a young age, I realized that Jesus was not just a story in a comic book, but that he was real, and I could actually know him. I wish I could describe for you all what a powerful moment of understanding that was for me, even as a child. Now, through all my life, Christ has been the constant. As I have grown and changed, his love for me has been steadfast. He has pursued me every time I turned away from him. By his death, Al said, by Christ's death on the cross, he humiliated all the powers that were arrayed against him, and he defeated our worst enemies, sin and death. So his final appeal was let us all live out of the resources of Christ. Trust in Christ, he appealed, with all your hearts, for he is faithful. Seven months ago, we began to survey the Bible's view of death together, asking what it meant for a Christian and what it meant for a non-believer in Christ, if that was different. And indeed, it is different, and we spent a number of weeks in the fall looking without blinking at a very hard subject, the subject of God's judgment and hell for unbelief, probably a little startled if we've never noticed before the hard things that Jesus said. will face those who do not have the shelter of His righteousness to face eternity. And then we've sketched the incredible destination for those who belong to Christ, the solid certainty that a Christian knows our souls are with Him immediately at death, and that joyful, ultimate expectation of a resurrection body and a whole new creation that Christ will bring when he returns to history. Well, I could have gone on and on. You have raised different questions about side paths and said, aren't you going to speak on this and aren't you going to speak on this? And I could be on this subject the rest of this year. But I'm stopping here today. The subject's not done. I haven't covered it completely. And like Al Groves in his little letter that he wrote to people to read after he had died, I am seeking to tell you today, as we wrap it up, a tremendous thing. For my subject is nothing less than the meaning of life and death. The meaning of life and death in 30 minutes. That's pretty ambitious. But I find, actually, I can do it because I can concentrate on one sentence that God, out of his own mind and heart, gave through the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.21. It's a short sentence, but it's so wonderful in what it states. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Dr. James Boyce said about this one verse in his commentary on the book of Philippians, this text cuts like a surgeon's scalpel right into the heart of Christianity. He meant that the person and work of Christ are certainly the bedrock foundation upon which our whole faith is built. If you take away Jesus as a risen and reigning and and living Lord, what do you have? Nothing. Nothing. Christ is the center. Everything else is circumference around the edges. And it has been my aim in the months we've considered the subject of after death. What? To show you Christ as the catalyst divinely sent from God into history so that he would secure for us the deepest meaning of life on this earth and life beyond this earth. Certainly, the gospel says, without a doubt, what you do with Christ counts forever. I propose to examine this one verse with you this morning, set in the past and the present and the future tenses, in the hope that you can identify with all three. To begin, in the past tense, we say, to live is Christ, means this, that you at some point have bowed in fear and faith before the Christ of Easter. You at some past point have bowed in fear and faith before the Christ of Easter. Let me tell you about someone who did. He's the author of this letter, Saul of Tarsus. That was his name as a proud young individual, man uh, of many talents gone out into the world. Saul was self-reliant highly intelligent, well-educated, and not a little arrogant. He bowed before nobody. And yet one day on the road to Damascus on an errand which actually had him set upon killing Christians, he was blinded by a vision of the risen Jesus. He said, Jesus appeared to me. Not just a dream, he appeared just as he appeared on resurrection morning. In another place, Paul says, he appeared also to me as the last in line, as the one who came out of his time. And Saul of Tarsus saw the very one who he hated, who he was dedicated to exterminate the followers of Jesus. But this very self-sufficient, ambitious man was knocked down on the ground and his physical eyes for a time were blinded, but his spiritual eyes were open. For the first time, he saw what he'd never seen before. I don't know if Saul, if Tarsus, had ever dealt with the question before, what is life? What does life mean? If he had, I'm pretty sure here's what he would have said. He would have said, life means obeying the law of God from the Scriptures and building up my own righteousness in that law as far as my efforts can accomplish it. That's what he would have said. We know that from his own testimony in letters he wrote. He was entirely wrapped up in achieving the greatest heights he could achieve in his religion, in his career, and interestingly, he didn't seem to care who he had to step on along the way to achieve it. But after the Damascus wrote, he wasn't even called Saul anymore. He had a new name, and he was, of course, Paul the apostle, the same one who now decades later is saying in Philippians 121, living is Christ, period. Now, we know the circumstances about this letter. He was under Roman arrest, at least house arrest. We're not sure if he was in an actual prison, but he was confined. He was under authority in Rome. He knew there was a very real possibility. He knew how the political wheels turned and and what the empire had against him. And the testimony that others had brought, mostly all false evidence, but nevertheless things that would indict him. And he knew what would probably happen. He would probably die at the hands of Rome. Well, as a matter of fact, he did. We're not sure exactly how long it took from the writing of this letter until his death, but he did die. He was beheaded. Now, he didn't know that for sure, but he knew it was a pretty good probability. And if you know being beheaded is a pretty good probability, let me tell you, it really focuses your thoughts. You're saying, well, what was my life anyway? How did I get here? What am I going to die for? And when he thinks about that, he says, here's what it was all about living is Christ, dying is more Christ. You see, the apostle says I could go on living 20 more years. If I did, I, I think that would be a good thing before God, and I, it's not that I hate my life. I would enjoy going on living and interacting with people and telling them about Christ and seeing them built up and seeing new churches planted. That would be great. It would be a fruitful thing. But I could die right now with no regrets and no qualms, and as a matter of fact, that would be the best thing. That would be the best thing. Now, you might tell me, of course, you're not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. I don't think any of us have had the kind of vivid vision of Christ appearing to us that Saul of Tarsus had. We haven't had this shining vision. You say, is that what you have to have in your past to be a real Christian? Well, as a matter of fact, no. God reserves those kinds of knockout visions for the real hardheads and Saul was a real hard head. It's interesting that Peter in 1 Peter 1.8 actually praised folks who bow before Christ without even physically seeing him. Peter says, without having seen him, you folks love him. He was saying, that's a great thing. You're not a hard case. God doesn't need to rattle your cage the way he did for Saul to get your attention. Your faith is praiseworthy. As a matter of fact, there were people who saw Christ in the flesh and who saw the events of the resurrection with their physical eyes, and it didn't impress them, and they didn't come to faith. If we went to Matthew's version of the resurrection scene, Matthew 28 tells about two different groups of people at the tomb of Jesus. The first group are the guards who were there, hardened, cynical guards doing their job, gambling, trying to catch some sleep, not really interested in all this religious mumbo-jumbo and they experienced an earthquake. They were rocked and, and startled. And the text says they shook like dead men as the stone of the grave moved and, and fell aside. And then this angel, this, this creature in white was there. And they were terrified. They, they must have fled because they were gone by the time most of the women came on the scene. They were full of fear when they saw with their eyes, and it didn't become faith as far as we may be. Who knows? Later on, people would like to think fanciful stories like one of these soldiers came to Christ, but we don't know that. As far as we know, they ran with fear and came to, and did not come to faith. But here are the women who come. They saw the same things. They too were afraid. And I emphasize as I read Mark's account that Fear is emphasized. They were terrified. The very last verse leaves you with saying they went away and they were afraid. They didn't know what to make of it. But that was only temporary because soon they did know what to make of it. Someone, you see, has written to say that fear with the scary part deleted is what we call fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is wonderment, amazement, awe, reverence. It's fear with the scary part deleted. And it's that kind of fear that brought some to trust him. Yes, few of us are going to experience anything so dramatic as Saul's Damascus Road experience or the what the women saw at the tomb. But the drama aspect of this point in your past that you would bow in fear and faith isn't the important part, how dramatic it was. The important thing is, can you say at this moment in your life that no matter how you came to it, you have bowed in fearful faith, faith that wonders, faith that exclaims, faith that says, Lord, I can hardly believe it. And you have decided in that faith, Christ indeed is the wellspring of life and everything that has permanent meaning for the rest of my life and my eternity is known in and through Jesus Christ. A Christian is a person who at some point has drawn a line in the sand, bowed and surrendered everything you know of yourself to everything you know of God in Christ, and said to God, Lord, I can't do this by myself. I'm not as great as I thought I was. In fact, I'm a mess. I drive my stake down here, I draw my line in the sand, and I take a stand with your wonderful son. Jesus, do unto me whatever you design to do for the those who belong to Jesus. I want to belong to Him. Here I am, Lord. To live as Christ is what comes from people who, at some point, have bowed in fear and faith before the Christ of Easter. Well, if you've crossed that line, and some of you may need to, but if you have crossed that line. Then we can speak to you about the present tense aspect of this. To live is Christ in the present means walking in a daily union with him who literally holds all of reality together. A couple of years ago, I read a very good biography of Albert Einstein, interesting book about an interesting man. Einstein spent the last years of his life, after he was already famous, the theory of relativity. He was already the exalted scholar at Princeton that everyone wanted to come and see. He didn't have anything to prove, but he was thinking and working and doing formulas almost every day of his life with one big goal in mind. Einstein felt sure in his bones that there was out there for the discovering yet one unified theory that would describe where the universe came from and how it worked. The unified field theory, he called it. And he worked his, his theorems, you know, in indecipherable mathematics to most of us. Even when he was in the hospital for his last illness, he was covering pages of paper with, with formulas, trying to find this unified field theory that would describe the whole universe. Well, he never found it. Now, he was better qualified to do that task than just about anybody else. His search was very well-intentioned, but he didn't find it. The interesting thing is, what Einstein with his great mind was looking for was already revealed by God in the pages of Scripture. And it's not a theory. See, that's the problem. It's not available in mathematics It's a person. It's a person in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge come together. The person of Jesus. Did you realize everybody has some kind of a worldview, some kind of a meaning of life theme that? that makes them get up every day and and keep going. A lot of people couldn't explicate it. If you said, what's your worldview, they'd scratch their heads and say, I don't know what you're talking about. But if you, you broke it down a little bit and said, well, what's the meaning of life to you? You'd get something sooner or later. There are poor people in the third world for whom it's not philosophy. It's the raw reality of every day, just existing. My worldview is, how will I eat within the next 12 hours? Where will I sleep in a safe place? That's a worldview. It's a desperate one. There are people in more developed and safe, secure countries like America whose worldview is, is more aimed at the materialistic. If You go back to the Greeks, we'd call it the Epicurean worldview, the enjoyment of the things of this world. And the theme of the Epicureans, of course, was always eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Well, American materialism isn't very different. Get your home, get everything paid off, build up your retirement, have a nice car, enjoy yourself while you can. Then there's a stoic ideal. Well, stoics are a little more negative. They say, you know, life is hard. Life means suffering. Life means grit your teeth and endure its pain and don't expect too much else. Then there's an even more negative view, the cynical view. Shakespeare probably spoke for the cynic's view of life, uh, the worldview there, when he had a line in one of his plays that said, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury but signifying nothing. One more possible worldview is the humanistic viewpoint. This is a positive one and many people hold it today. They say, well, I don't know what I'm here for, but I do know that While I'm alive, I'm going to do as much good as I can for as many other people. And and that sounds really good because that's not selfish. That's a good thing. Sure, help people. But you know, every one of those, as a a total worldview, falls apart because it only deals with one little segment of life. And worse, none of them deal with the great threat that we face over all of life, the threat of death. And so we put to test and say, will our worldview deal with death? The author of the letter of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.14 and following about Christ, he says a word about Christ's utter uniqueness as the champion of a worldview. Here's what he wrote. He, Christ, shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and therefore free those who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death. Christ is the champion of a worldview that has the answer to death. When you discover some alternative worldview that does that, that breaks the universal bondage to the fear of death, will you please do something for me? Let the rest of us know. We'd really like to find out if there is some meaning of life other than Christ that does that. And so you see, because Christian disciples have this absolutely unique worldview, we want to be in union with Christ, and we are. We claim another Pauline text like Galatians 2.20 that says, I have been crucified with Christ. When he went to that cross, he was dying for my sins, and I, as, as the great ego in my life, I actually died with him. Nevertheless, I'm still alive. Yet not I, Paul said in Galatians 2.20, but Christ lives in me. And so the life I live from now on, I live in this flesh by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Life, in other words, means vital union with this Christ. My life is his. His is mine, and I need to stay in touch with him. I need fellowship bonds with him that I will find as I study this Scripture that reveals him more and more so that I can be 50 years old trusting in Christ and and I'll still find new things, reading Philippians, reading Psalms, reading John, And I'll say, oh, look at that. I never saw that about Christ before. Isn't he wonderful? And I'll continue in vital union with him. Last year, before I started this sermon series, we went through the letter of Colossians, another Pauline letter. And I was thrilled at the rediscovery. I'm the one who gains the most by these Sermons, just like any teacher knows, they have to learn before the class is going to learn. And I was thrilled again to see the things that Colossians chapter 1 say, the mind-expanding, limitless praises to Christ that are in Colossians 1.15. Christ is the image of the invisible God. What a claim. Who else makes that claim? Has any great thinker ever said, other than a nutcase that got locked up, I am the the image of the invisible God. Paul said that about Christ. You want to know about God? Look at Christ. Colossians 1.17. He is before all things. And listen to this. In him, all things hold together. Mr. Einstein, there's your answer. There's the theory you were looking for. In Christ Everything holds together. He is the co-creator. He is from God, and he today as reigning Lord is the answer you sought, the source of all things, the head of all things, the goal of all things, the heartbeat, the climax, the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer. What more can you say? It all hangs together because of Christ. What a wonder he is. Of course I can say, my life, as far as it finds meaning, finds its meaning in him. And therefore, I hear the great call that Paul issues to Christian disciples in Colossians 2.6, just as you once received Christ Jesus as Lord. That's the past tense part I was talking about. Once you received him as Lord, what else do you need to do? Continue to live daily in Him, rooted and built up in Him. Go on walking in union with the one in whom everything hangs together. But we're not finished because the finish of Philippians 121 is this other phrase, the future phrase. Past tense, to live is Christ. Present tense, to live is Christ. Future tense, to die is gain. I was pointing out to my wife, went online, checking out our retirement account earnings, and I said, come look at this. They had just passed a certain, I'm not going to tell you what, you'll come and rob me, but <laughs> they had just passed a certain threshold. I said, look at that. And, and it was a quiet couple weeks in the stock market, nothing spectacular, just a 14-point rise here in Dow Jones, you know, 40 points there, nothing big. But look, we just reached a new threshold in our retirement earnings. What did we do? We gained. Isn't that what the stock market's all about? The desperate attempt to gain. Now, you see, in Philippians one twenty, the verse before our main verse here, Paul said he was eagerly expecting something. What was he eagerly expecting? The coming of spring? Getting out of jail? No. He was eagerly expecting Christ to be exalted in his body, whether by life or death. Now, Paul had probably gone to some funerals. He'd been around for a while in the Christian church, and they had funerals. We have funerals. And you know how you go and speak comforting words to the family, and then as you're heading out to your car, you mutter to your wife, What a loss! What a loss! 45 years old and so much to live for. What a loss! And Paul said, look, I don't know how old he was, but he wanted to forestall any of that kind of conversation when the word went out, Paul is dead. He said, let me tell you in advance, it's not a loss, it's a gain. When I die, it will be a -A G-A-I-N of the highest order, like the stock market exploded on a single day and went up 1,000 points. Why wouldn't that be great? None of us expects it. But Paul said, when I die, it will only be gain because my life now is all Christ. And when I die, my life will be an infinite exposure to Christ. Here I have the appetizer, then I'll have the banquet. He was so confident of that day when Christ would visibly return, would bring the resurrection of all things, that his soul would be safe with Christ until then. And when Christ did come, he'd have this new body. He said, gain, gain, gain. That's all it will be. I don't know why, for some reason, the other day, I thought about the Encyclopedia Britannica. Haven't thought about it for a long time. I used to own a set of the Encyclopedia Britannica. I bought in the early 70s. Paid a pretty fair amount of money for it. I think it filled about that much space on a shelf I don't remember how many volumes, but my guess is probably close to 20 volumes, each one a rather large book with thin paper, you know, really loaded book. What was that? A repository of tremendous knowledge, right? And if I would want to find out a fact, I'd go to it. Well, if I still own that, I've gotten rid of it because I began to realize it's out of date. And in fact, who uses an encyclopedia anymore? Can I see a show of hands? How many of you have physically consulted an encyclopedia in the last week? Oh, a couple people. That's actually surprising. But how many of you have gone online to get some information in the last week? You can see what's going on in our society. What do we do with encyclopedia books anymore, these vast, bulky books that are out of date? We go to the huge repository of electronic information that's not out of date. It's up to the minute. Well, let me tell you, I know when I owned the Encyclopedia Britannica, there were all these volumes, thousands and thousands of pages. Probably, I'm sure had to be 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 pages of detailed information. But you know what? I know that in volume one, there was a preface by the editors that was about six pages long. Just kind of an introduction to what an encyclopedia is. Why do I tell you that? Because, ladies and gentlemen, I believe as Christian people, we are living in the preface. The six-page preface that doesn't begin to get into the depths and the heights and the length and the breadth of what eternity will be living in the presence of Christ. You have the whole Encyclopedia Britannica and much more awaiting you if you know Christ. You have an endless series of discoveries of great things that you will learn when you see Christ face to face and you are like him because death brings all of Christ to all of God's people who know him by faith. When we talk about heaven, some people want to say, well, tell me more about the details. Tell me what I'll look like. Uh, How old will I be? What language will I speak? Who, Who will my friends be? I can't tell you that stuff about heaven. The Bible doesn't go there. But the Bible says heaven will be Christ, and Christ will be heaven. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land, and it leaves Christians with big smiles on their faces and loud hallelujahs to say, praise God for what's coming. You know, we may be as sure as Paul was that God is going to leave us in this world as long as he has a useful role for us. He says that here, the verses I'm not really covering of this text. He says, I don't know how long I'm going to live, but I'm sure that as long as it is, God will have something for me to do, and when... His time is appointed for me to go. I'll go. In God's perfect providence, there's no incomplete life. There's no premature removal. Don't we say, oh, no, this person was taken away before their time. No, not in God's time. There's no incomplete life. There's no premature removal. And we have confidence that when we go, the knowledge of Christ we have now will be unlimited and full and complete. Can you as a Christian share the confidence of Paul? Of course you like living. Who would not like living on a beautiful day like this? The arrival of spring, it's a great time of year as far as I'm concerned, the best time of year. Maybe you have family, you have friends, you have loved ones. You say, I want to stay alive as long as I can. Hey, that's not wrong. But alongside your love of this life, Don't love only the preface. Love the encyclopedia that is to come. More of Christ, all of Christ, the fullness and blessedness of knowing him. No wonder Paul said it will be better by far than anything this world can give you. You see, the attitude of the world is, for me to live is self. And to die is loss of self and despair. Well, people made new by Easter faith turn that completely around and say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is more Christ. Which of those characterizes you? I pray that you know to the glory of God. Our Father, so much we could say about the great truths you've revealed in Jesus. We thank you for confidence. We thank you, and we're willing to be the fools that the world thinks we are, that we would be certain about the future, but we are. We're certain because we're certain of Jesus. Thank you for giving us that place to stand and place to hope. Thank you for glory that still lies ahead in him. Build your people up. Give them a sure hope. Lead some to draw that line in the sand and take their stand with him even today, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.